Hi, everybody. Jose Nino here, bringing you another intellectually stimulating episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined with a contrarian voice on foreign policy. Sergia Trifkovich is the foreign affairs editor of Chronicles magazine. He's also authored books such as The Sword of the Prophet and Feeding Jihad. How's your day going, Sergia? It's been pretty dynamic. I had exams this morning in Banja Luka, the capital of the Serb Republic in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And then I drove back, crossing two borders from Bosnia into Croatia, from Croatia into Serbia, all of it former Yugoslavia. And now I'm uh, here with you. So it's been a long day, but at least it keeps one on one's toes. Yeah, it's quite a trek you've done there. So just to start off, what motivated you to delve into the world of foreign affairs? It's hard to tell because, in fact, as far back as I remember, I've been interested in uh, both history and foreign affairs, military affairs, in uh, what turns out to be geopolitics, even though I didn't know the word at the time. I remember following on shortwave radio broadcasts from various Western outlets, even though Tito's Yugoslavia was not nearly as tightly controlled as the countries of the Soviet bloc. Nevertheless, the media was controlled and there was always a certain spin. And uh, I remember my earliest memory, actually, of a close interest in the foreign story concerned the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. I was eight years old at the time, and I actually remember my parents and their friends discussing this crisis as something very serious and something that obviously created some uh, degree of tension and concern, even in a country that, being non-aligned and not member of the Warsaw Pact, was Nevertheless, people felt that uh, if the crisis were to escalate, that the whole world could go to hell. I also remember being the first to tell my family that uh, JFK was assassinated because I was listening to the broadcast of The Voice of America in Serbian. And uh, it was late in the evening when this news came across. So I think it happened even before Belgrade Radio announced it. And then uh, at school in gymnasium, which is the equivalent of high school, uh, my favorite subject was history. And uh, mercifully, we still had real history taught at the time. It wasn't heavily colored by either Marxist ideology that was uh, dominant in Eastern Europe back in the 60s and the 70s, nor was it destroyed by wokedom of today, when what passes for history in American schools is, in fact, mutilation of history in the name of ideological indoctrination. Yeah, I see. You're absolutely correct about how a lot of that analysis has like devolved into just like radical leftist wokeism now, and it's really like a sign of massive decline. Now, what I find particularly interesting of the work you've done on Chronicles and other outlets is your focus on the Balkan conflicts of the 90s, because I have seen a resurgence of interest in those conflicts in many political circles now. And for good reason, because it was like the first significant set of hot conflicts to kick off following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Why do you think this moment in European history merits 
scrutiny and further analysis? Uh, for two main reasons. One, that the demonization of the Serbs in uh, the mass media and the political mainstream of the Western world, and particularly the United States, seems to have been the precursor of the Russophobic discourse of today, as if the Serbs were the, uh, the test case of how you distort the nature of a conflict, how you simplify it and uh, lie about it, and yet find a ready market which is receptive to the misrepresentation. Secondly, because it was the first time that the Russian establishment realized, I'm talking now particularly about the bombing of Serbia in 99, and the resulting detachment of Kosovo from Serbia, which of course Serbs don't accept as permanent. But in a couple of interviews over the years, President Putin actually singled out this particular episode, the 78 days of NATO bombing, as the occasion when he came to realize that uh, it would be very hard, if not impossible, for Russia to come to an understanding with the US-led Western alliance because it is hell-bent on inventing the reason for its continued existence through expansion and aggression. I remember only four or five years ago, he repeated this statement when asked if Syria or Crimea was the point at which uh, those relations started deteriorating or the second Ukraine crisis in 2014. And he said, no, it was Yugoslavia 1999. I would add an additional reason why this was an important episode, uh, because it was really the first time that instead of a real political reason for an intervention, which in the past would have been justified by, say, the domino effects in Vietnam, however mistaken, but at least it had the air of realpolitik to it. This one was justified by uh, so-called humanitarian concerns. And uh, the theory of humanitarian intervention is one of the more nebulous liberal inventions which have had pernicious effects on, on international relations, because in principle, you can invoke any humanitarian crisis anywhere in the world as the reason for intervention. And of course, it can only be applied to countries that don't have atomic weapons. So the alleged genocide of the Uyghurs in China's Xinjiang province cannot be a casus belli, the, the reason for war. But on the other hand, the mistreatment of Christians by Muslims is never invoked. And uh, of course, all over the Middle East, we have this problem in evidence. I only came back from Egypt five days ago. And uh, even though the situation of the Christian Copts there is much better now under President Sisi than it would have been under the Muslim Brotherhood, it is still precarious. So just to recapitulate the answer to your question, even though it is now not vividly remembered because the memory in the Western world is so short, the intervention in the Balkans in the 90s was an early sign that NATO from the guardian of the Western alliance during the Cold War had turned into a globalist liberal vigilante out of control. 
the point you raised about Russia is very apt because Russia in the 1990s was a total mess. So NATO could get away with a lot of its underhanded shenanigans, both in conventional and unconventional senses, because Russia was weak. But once Russia started reconstituting itself, it demonstrated pretty decisively, both in the Georgian intervention and in Crimea, that it's willing to use whatever tool is necessary to reassert itself in its historic sphere of influence. And that's one thing about real politique that many people in the foreign policy blob in the U.S. don't get, that once these powers start recuperating their strength, they're going to have their own red lines and they're not going to tolerate external actors like the U.S. getting in their traditional sphere of influence. So, yeah, this leads to my next point here. Because like since the Soviet Union collapsed, I've noticed like a really dominant strain, well, really two dominant strains of thoughts, like one in neoconservatism and then its neoliberal cousin when it comes to foreign policy. And what I've gathered from your work is that you've really focused on attacking a lot of these foreign policy outlooks. In your view, what are the principal flaws behind the neoconservative and neoliberal approaches to foreign policy? In my opinion, they're just two sides of the same coin. Because if you look at the neoconservative establishment embodied in the project for the new American century and uh, the American Enterprise Institute and uh, the foreign policy team under uh, George W. Bush, invariably you will find that these people do not believe in any form of traditional America with its emphasis on small governments, on non-interference in the affairs of other countries, on the tradition of George Washington's farewell address, and the observance of the principle that we do not go around the world in search of, of monsters to slay. But instead, they're really statists who believe in a wholly ahistorical notion of America as a proposition nation that has the God-given right to go around the world telling people how to arrange their lives. The only difference, perhaps, is that whereas neoconservatives are more hard-faced when it comes to the lust for other nations' natural resources and other nations' geopolitical assets, the neoliberals are more focused on the cultural issues and on the obsession with spreading their own gospel of human rights and uh, various other, inverted commas, rights, which they want to impose on others, most notably under the Biden administration, by propagating LGBTQ plus ideology. It's interesting and ironic indeed, that uh, uh, one of the last postings on the website of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul last summer was a big banner that uh, the United States celebrates LGBTQ rights month of June, and there was a picture of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul with the rainbow flag fluttering above its, uh, its rooftop. So the reason for this obsessive Russophobia that we are witnessing right now in, I would say, 
neurotic form, in psychopathological form, but which has been around for years, differs between these two camps only in degree, but not in kind. So whereas the neoconservatives would be primarily focused on trying to grab Russian oil and and gas reserves and as much of Russian territory as possible. The neoliberals are primarily obsessed by the fact that Russia is the last Christian European white nation, which is unashamed of its past and uh, which is not turning its back on its history and its ancestors and uh, its particularly, but not turning its back on its Christian faith and spirituality. To the Western liberal post-postmodern elite, this is totally unacceptable. And so they're obsessively hysterical about Russia because how dare Russia still be standing as as a nation that, uh, you know, uh, still reads Tolstoy and Dostoevsky instead of Maya Angelou and still includes the patriarch of Moscow in its state celebrations and the significant events, and which does not accept the notion, even the possibility, that there will be gays in the military of the Russian Federation or that there will be pride parade in the streets of Moscow or St. Petersburg. I'm now simplifying things, but my real focus is on the roots of cultural animosity to Russia as such, rather than any particular policy pursued by Russia as the root cause of Western animosity. And it's not Western in the sense that ordinary people in the United States or in Western Europe have this odium, this this hatred of Russia. It's really limited to uh, the coastal elites in the US and uh, to the dominant political class in Europe, particularly in the apparatus of the European Union in Brussels. From what I've gathered, observing a lot of Russian policy is that a lot of these neoconservative and neoliberal anti-Russia hawks tend to have like these weird ethnic grievances, especially like the Victoria Newlands stuff that they kind of think that they're going back to like a czarist Russia era and that like Putin is this like new, like uh, it's like this neo-czar, if you will, that's about to like commit like some pogrom against like Russian Jews or other ethnic groups. And it's just like a weird type of fixation these people have with their anti-Russia views that, in my opinion, I've I've argued extensively that neoconservatism and its per- many permutations are not foreign policies, but really ideological and like cultural fixations against like certain countries. And it's really an expression of American supremacy, but in a really like distorted light, because I've also, I'm of the view that America is like a post-national entity at this point, which does segue into my next question, which is about mass migration. Because from what I've read in your works, you're also pretty contrarian when it comes to mass migration and you view it in a much more skeptical light. I'm of the opinion that it is one of the defining issues of our era And it does have a geopolitical component to it as well. In what ways do you see mass migration as a threat to Western identity? The primary threat is in the fact that both in North America and in Europe, the overwhelming percentage of recent immigrants are not coming 
with the intention of integrating into the host society, but taking advantage of the host society. If we look in Europe, at Europe in particular, what is significant is that, unlike in the United States, the influx has been primarily, overwhelmingly, from the traditionally Muslim countries. And uh, this has created a curious, yet to me predictable phenomenon, that even though Muslim communities in Western Europe and uh, Central Europe come from very different parts of the world, for instance, in Britain, they're mostly from the Indian subcontinent, from India itself, which has over 200 million Muslims, from Pakistan and Bangladesh. In Germany, they're mostly from Turkey, in France, overwhelmingly from North Africa, from Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. In uh, the Nordic countries, oddly enough, many of them come from Somalia, and the Sub-Saharan belt. But everywhere, whether it's the Algerians in Marseille, in France, or the Pakistanis in Leicester, in England, or the Turks in uh, Stuttgart, in Germany, or the Moroccans in Rotterdam, in Holland, they tend to behave in a similar way, to create exclusively Muslim enclaves from which the native population, so to call it, the, the English, the Dutch, the Germans, the French, run away, and which eventually turn into de facto Sharia zones. In France, they euphemistically call them the areas of heightened sensitivity, <laughs> which is really an Orwellian way of saying this is a no-go yeah. no zone for regular French people, and that's an area where an ambulance needs to be accompanied by a police car if it wants to emerge out of it. Another significant characteristic of this phenomenon is that uh, it is almost forbidden to discuss openly uh, the behavior of these people. A drastic example was a series of crimes committed against German persons, particularly women, uh, during a riotous New Year's Eve assembly of young Muslim males at uh, the railway station in Cologne, Germany, about which the newspapers and television channels kept quiet for about 48 hours until, because of social media, they could no longer keep it under tabs, or the epidemic of crime in general, and rapes in particular in Scandinavia, unprecedented, for which over 90%, it turns out, the culprits are Muslim immigrant males, and which nevertheless you mustn't say aloud. So what is happening is that uh, increasingly these immigrant populations, and we are now looking at not only second, but third, even fourth generation immigrants, do not accept any element of the host country's culture and tradition and way of life. On the contrary, because the dominant elites which rule these countries are still repeating the mantra that they have the right to their own traditions, that uh, Islam is beautiful and praiseworthy religion of peace and tolerance and, and compassion, etc., etc., ad nauseum, they actually feel contempt for the whole society because they see it as weak, degenerate, and uh, 
ready for taking. Uh, one phrase I like in this context is a candy store with a busted lock. And uh, this melancholy process was predicted with remarkable foresight by the late French author Jean Respai, who wrote his seminal dystopic novel, The Camp of the Saints, 50 years ago. He died a year and a half ago, and in which he describes a nonviolent migrant invasion of France, which very soon turns violent by uh, the invaders, and which the degenerate French elite is not uh, willing or capable of resisting. And uh, it is, one might say, scary and, and remarkable to what extent Respai's visions from the period when the whole process was still in its embryonic stage uh, has come true. In one of his last interviews in early 2020, he died in June of 2020 of the consequences of corona infection. He was, I believe, almost 90 years old. But in one of his last interviews, he said that uh, basically that our goose is cooked, that uh, things have simply gone too far, and that it would take some kind of life-altering and uh, catastrophic event such as a sudden and uh, devastating economic and, and financial crisis to make Westerners come to their senses and to realize that they need to defend what is theirs and to uphold and celebrate uh, the greatest and best civilization, after all, that the world has known. And, uh, of course, to even mention Respai's name is strictly forbidden in polite company in France and, uh, and elsewhere, and in, in the same manner, the discourse on immigration and culture in the United States has come to be dominated by the globalist open borders supporters to such an extent that even a very modest proposal such as would have been considered normal only 15, 20 years ago, which is to uh, maybe evaluate the ability of would-be applicants to integrate into the American society and to accept American norms and values, would now be considered racist and uh, supremacist, etc., etc., etc. So it is not that ordinary people have lost the all-too-natural ability to be proud of their heritage, of their identity, and of their culture. But uh, it is the dominant elites that are trying to rob them of that heritage and to indoctrinate their children into believing that they're collectively guilty of all sorts of horrible sins and that they should be ashamed of their ancestors and of their cultural legacy. Yeah, the immigration question probably is not going away anytime soon, and it's going to have some pretty nasty effects in the long term, in my opinion, because there are certain migrant groups, as you mentioned, that not only assimilate, do not assimilate, but also are effectively weaponized, because you see this with Turkey, the so-called long arm of Ankara, where the Turkish government does like use its migrants to kind of like project forms of soft power in these countries where Turks tend to migrate to. And even you see this too in the U.S. with 
a lot of Chinese nationals that get caught committing acts of like military and corporate espionage. It is like immigration is not just like a movement of people. It's actually like can change the politics of a country and allow for other external actors to come in and establish footholds and carve out their little ethnic ghettos or even like espionage forward basis, if you will. So that's something that a lot of people don't consider. Now, let's talk about like the overall geopolitical landscape, which has changed quite a lot actually over the past decade, because you now have like China and Russia beginning to reassert themselves in their respective historical spheres of influence. Moreover, you have middle powers, as I mentioned, with Turkey, who are also beginning to flex their geopolitical muscles. Do you believe that multipolarity is here to stay, or do you see it as a transitional phase that moves more towards a bipolar China versus U.S. order? I believe it is the latter. Because we really cannot put Russia and China in the same category. While I do not believe that Russia is a terminally declining power, as some Western authors like to claim, in fact, I believe that Russia has passed the worst moment of of decline a quarter of a century ago. But at the same time, I do not believe that uh, its demographic and uh, political scene is particularly encouraging for carving out the position of a major player on the global scene. I think that Russia will be able to recover its uh, clout and influence in the near abroad, and most notably that Ukraine will be eventually Finlandized, which is the best outcome for everybody concerned. Just like Finland during the Cold War, Mm -hmm. it will be free to pursue Western-style free enterprise economic system to even be integrated into all sorts of EU-led initiatives without ever becoming a member of the EU, because the EU itself would never accept Ukraine, but uh, kept neutral. Also, like Austria after 1955, when it regained full independence, and uh, when its neutral status was regulated by international treaty between the East and the West. Yet, to come back to your original question, I believe that the United States and China will be the two defining contenders for global dominance in the 21st century. The United States as the would-be guardian of the status quo in the name of the liberal international order, what the globalist elite likes to call the rules-based international order, which is in fact not based on any permanent and value-neutral rules, but on what any at any given moment in time, the foreign policymakers in Washington, D.C. decide that, that are the rules. China, on the other hand, is far from being ideologically rigid society inspired by communism and Mao Zedong, etc., is, in fact, an eminently traditional nationalist power which is pursuing policies which, in my opinion, wouldn't be all that different, even had Chiang Kai-shek won the civil war in 1949. And if we had today the Guomintang government led by Chiang's successors, and let's face it, even uh, in Taiwan, in Taipei, you have many politicians who have no time for 
independence dreams and who actually secretly rejoice at the prospects of China increasing its global role, even though they don't want to be ruled from Beijing. But in the long term, they see the rise of China as something that is in accordance with uh, their own political tradition. Uh, so we are all familiar, I, I hope your, uh, your listeners certainly are, with the term Thucydides' trap, which is <clears throat> the possibility of violent conflict between a status quo power, such as Sparta was at the time of the ancient Greek historian, in the 5th century BC, and uh, the rising challenging powers such as, as Athens. Today, it would be the US as the status quo power and China as the challenger. And if you look through history between Carthage and Rome, and uh, later on Byzantium and, and the Ottomans, the Habsburgs versus the Bourbons in France, and then Napoleon versus everybody else, Germany of the Kaiserreich versus the Entente. Invariably, when you have the challenger who wants to change the status quo, and when you have determined defenders of the status quo, uh, the result is war. Of course, having nuclear weapons is an inhibiting element in the possibility of escalation of a conflict. But at the same time, let's not forget that in World War II, all sides, the Nazis, the Western Allies, the Soviets, and even the Japanese, had massive arsenals of deadly poisonous gas, which could be used against the advancing armies at any moment in time, when the Red Army was collapsing in the East in 1941, or the, when the Wehrmacht was collapsing in Central Europe in 1945, and yet it was not used. And likewise, I believe that even China's long-term planners, who of course regard their nuclear arsenal as the deterrent of last resort, believe that in the long term they, they can fight a conventional war against the United States without either side resorting to the nuclear option. Yeah, interesting stuff all around. So just to cap off this discussion, with the rise of multipolarity in the geopolitical sphere, there's a lot of talk about the U.S. not just being in a state of relative decline in terms of overall power on the world stage, but also on the domestic front. You can just look at the yes. Black Lives Matter insanity of 2020, rising crime, collapsing social trust, rising opioid deaths, etc. From your perspective as a Serb, what do you think the future looks like for the U.S. and broader West, for that matter? Well, first of all, I uh, actually regard myself as, as an American uh, with Serb roots because I still believe that it is possible for the traditional America with which I identify to be resurrected. But I think that it is necessary for a major life-altering event to happen first. And I think that this decline that you describe is indeed happening and uh, will eventually accelerate to the point where normal people, not to be confused with the normies who are in reality misguided <laughs> patriots who believe the lies, 
but when I say normal people, people who are not brainwashed into the ideological obsession of the day, whatever it may be, and who realize that uh, we are really witnessing an ongoing march of insanity, that these people at some point will have both the guts and the capacity to say no more. And maybe an early precursor of this we are witnessing with uh, the convoy phenomenon in Canada. Canada, of all places, which seem to be the bright example of uh, extreme leftist wokedom in action, where we are witnessing, you know, an impressive display of resistance. So, yes, I believe that such resistance is both possible and necessary in the United States, and that the grip of the ruling elite is somewhat weaker than both they think and we who do not accept its inevitable victory may suspect that, in fact, a sign of cracks in their own monolithic capacity to impose uniformity of thought and uniformity of feeling and uniformity of personal expression, the first crack will be a sign that the whole edifice may crumble sooner than we think. It happened with the Soviet bloc after the Hungarian uprising of 1956. It was the first crack, which was then followed by the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia in 1968, which necessitated military intervention. And after that, the Soviet Union was never the same. It could no longer be a magnet for Western leftists. It could no longer be taken even seriously as a viable model for long-term social and, and economic development. Likewise, let me summarize, the last two years of COVID have given us ample evidence that uh, sometimes idiotic and often heavy-handedly dictatorial measures of Western governments have been both inefficient and irrational. And that in itself is an indicator that the Western model, when faced with what they claim was an existential challenge, didn't work very well. In European case, the indicator of shape to things to come will be the demographic curve. If it continues its cataclysmic decline, which is particularly apparent in, in the Mediterranean countries, uh, such as Spain and Italy, but also in France, when we talk about the French and not immigrants. And in the, in the United States, whether we will see at least state-by-state state resistance and local resistance to the federal insanity will be the litmus test of survivability and recovery. I believe it's possible, and I will finish by recalling an anecdote from Moscow in the horrible winter of 96. I was there with then editor of Chronicles, Thomas Fleming. We attended a conference and uh, we had a dinner with the late Igor Shafarevich, who, who was and still is a famous Russian mathematician, but also a historian, social historian, who we asked if he could see any hope for the recovery of Russia, which was in horrible shape, as you mentioned earlier. And uh, Professor Shafarevich said, 
as a mathematician who likes to deal with exactitudes and empirically verifiable measurements, I would say I cannot really put together a model for Russia's recovery that would be uh, either viable in the short term or applicable in the medium term. But, But as an Orthodox Christian who believes in the possibility of the intervention of the Holy Spirit, I believe that the recovery is possible and therefore probable and therefore imminent. So uh, I would say likewise that even though America seems to be in dire straits, as dire in many ways as Russia was a quarter of a century ago, that faith will save us and that if we maintain belief that the world is not cos- a chaos, but, but cosmos ruled by a benevolent creator who cares for us and who loves us, then uh, we can indeed save ourselves. Well, Sergio, I really enjoyed this discussion, and it was very enlightening to say the least. Before we leave, please promote your content to our listeners and direct them where to follow you. Uh, Yes, uh, the website is chroniclesmagazine.org. If you come to the website, you will usually find one of my blog articles in the lower part and uh, some of the time one of my columns from the print edition in the upper part. But certainly if you look at uh, authors under my name, you will find a huge trove of articles going back for over a decade. So chroniclesmagazine.org. Great stuff. Well, to my listeners, I am grateful for your attention, and I look forward to you tuning in to future episodes of El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.